right, look at those kids. They know exactly what to do. Kids, you guys are dismissed. Look at them. And uh, youth group, if there's any junior or senior hires in here, you guys are dismissed as well. Um, so, hey, that was a great prayer that Dante prayed, not just for them because they're going to college, but really that's for all of us. Amen? That was great stuff in there. So, um, anyway, appreciate that and appreciate their hearts. It is always excited when, uh, when somebody graduates and heads off to the next season of their life, and so we just want to be part of that as a church family. And uh, you can pray for uh, me because my poor wife's going to be a basket case starting about tomorrow. So... <laughs> You can pray especially for Michelle. So, um, hey, with that said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today. We're actually going to finish the chapter. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're going to need one. Uh, So raise your hand, and we would love to put one into your hands, one that you can keep if you need to, um, or one that you can just borrow for the day. You can use the Bible on your phone, too. Uh, Any Bible is a good uh, Bible. But we'll be in chapter 10, starting out in verse 46. Um, So let's just pray and uh, just ask the Lord to continue to bless uh, and to bless our time in the word as we go to it today. So Father, we do thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for that wonderful time of worship, Lord, and that wonderful time as a church family, Lord. And we just pray that you'd continue to minister to us this morning, Lord, as we turn to your word, Lord. We pray as we do each and every time we open it, Lord. We pray that you would be our teacher today, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, and uh, we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So Mark chapter 10, and you know, we last left Jesus, you'll remember, on what is really his final journey up to Jerusalem and to the cross, which was waiting for him there where he would give his life, as he said in the last chapter, give his life as a ransom for our lives, right? The servant of all who came to serve and not to be, to be served. And we saw that he, you know, taught that to, in the text last time to the disciples. They had kind of paused, you remember, on this pit stop on their way down the Jordan River Valley for this what was really an important discussion, I think, about our true influence and ministry within the kingdom. And we saw that that is really the one valuable thing, is to serve like Jesus, right? To, to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to be an influencer in that way, really, for Jesus in the world. And it's, that's what makes us great in the eyes of heaven, as well, we find, as in the eyes of those around us. And we, we said that, you know, as we saw in, in our exchange there last time, that at this point, Jesus is likely just days away from his arrival there in Jerusalem. And it has been kind of a long road as he heads for the final time. We saw him head out of the Galilee, right down toward the south, and then up toward Jerusalem, Uh, toward the cross. And really this brings to a climax kind of this three and a half years now we've been through as we've looked at his earthly ministry. And it's been this ministry during which we have watched him perform 
uh, countless miracles, all of these miracles that demonstrate his authority and really kind of heralded the arrival of this coming kingdom. And we mentioned it as we started, but I'll remind you again, there are more miracles recorded for us in Mark's gospel account than in any of the other uh, three gospels. And this morning we're going to watch what will be kind of his final display of that authority before he reaches Jerusalem. Really what will be, aside from the resurrection, kind of his final, at least his final healing ministry. It's the final act kind of of that kind of mercy, right? We've seen from, you know, all across the land, from the north to the south, to the, the high country, to the low country, everywhere in between, We've seen Jesus doing these miracles, these signs and these wonders, these different mighty works which displayed his deity and they, they demonstrated his compassion and his great power. And all the while, he used those miracles as a platform really just to preach salvation and to preach this entrance into this wonderful new kind of upside down and glorious kingdom. And what I think we're going to see this morning, that this sort of final miracle of mercy, if you will, I think in such a beautiful way, it really puts this final period, if you will, this punctuation mark on this incredible ministry that we've seen so far. And it has a real sense of significance just in terms of the, that, that very miraculous work that he wants to do in each and every one of our lives uh, today. So this morning we're going to join Jesus. We're going to jump in there kind of as part of his entourage. And we see just at the beginning of verse 46, it says, Now they came to Jericho. Now Jericho is certainly one of the world's oldest, you know, kind of continually occupied cities. Jericho was a beautiful kind of a desert oasis. It's about 15 mountainous miles downhill from Jerusalem. It was known as the city of Palms. It's about a six-hour walk straight up to get to Jerusalem, and it was the last major city along this route that Jesus would have been on. And historians tell us that at this time, Jericho was the most trafficked intersection in all the world because all commerce and travel and movement of troops anywhere between Europe to the north or Africa down to the south, everything would have passed through Jericho, right? So you add to that the fact that at this time of the year, as we approach the annual Passover, there would have been an estimated probably three million people that also would have been ascending up toward Jerusalem and many of them coming through Jericho to observe another year's Passover. And so given all of that, it's not surprising at all. We read in the next part of verse 46, right? They came to Jericho and then as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. So again, in this place, we see, you know, kind of that nice time we've had where it's just been Jesus and his disciples as he's been kind of pouring into them privately. We see that that time has come to an end. His reputation again precedes him. And now we have these multitudes here that are surrounding him, just hoping to catch a glimpse of this man that many think might be the Messiah. 
you know, many people probably with this expectation, maybe they'll witness a miracle, maybe they'll receive a blessing, maybe they'll hear a word of wisdom, maybe they'll even see some, some sparks fly, right, between another confrontation between Jesus and those religious leaders of Judaism who were opposing everything that he said and did. And so we have this huge multitude, really probably a combination of the people who are following Jesus because they know about him, but then again, just this mass of humanity which would have been flowing you know, to ascend to Jerusalem because they needed to be there for the Passover. So this would have been kind of the parade that never ended, right? And the residents of, of Jericho probably literally would have been lining the streets. And so it's there within this multitude of humanity Right as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, it says at the end of verse 46 that blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now, if you're a blind beggar in the ancient world, this would have been the place to be, right? Because if you want to be a successful beggar, you got to go where the crowds are, right? Like a big city, and especially a big city at this time with all of this traffic. Now what's interesting about Jericho especially is that it apparently had kind of a disproportionately large population of blind people. Apparently there was this, this balsam bush that only grew right around there and it supplied some sort of a juice or a salve that they thought was you know, medically beneficial you know, to help with some types of blindness. And so in Matthew's account, he actually, this same encounter, he actually records that there were two blind men, while both Mark and Luke just mentioned the more outspoken of them, but it's only Mark who gives us his name, Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus has come to be known to, to Bible students, right, with affection and admiration. Many people just refer to him as blind Bartimaeus. And what's really interesting, I think, is that Bartimaeus is the only person who Jesus healed. And I hope I didn't just ruin the ending for anybody, but Jesus is going to heal this guy, right? But Bartimaeus is the only person that Jesus healed in the Gospels who is named for us in the Gospels. And some have suggested that this man Bartimaeus became a well-known believer and a real kind of a pillar in the church. And by the time that Mark wrote his gospel account, this would have been a way to kind of tell this wonderful conversion story of this person who would have been familiar to some people who were reading. And I actually think even beyond that, I think it's not at all by accident that the Holy Spirit included his name for us here in Mark's account. Because Bartimaeus, as it says in our text, means son of Timaeus, which literally means son of the unclean one. Right? So it may be that he was blind because of, you know, vitamin deficiencies that were very common in the day, but it's more likely that his blindness was the result that was passed down through heredity. Right? Very possible that Bartimaeus was named that because his mother or his father had passed on this disease that produced this blindness in their son. And this possibility alone would have put him at the very bottom 
of Jewish society. Because in their theology, a blind person, you were blind because you were under divine judgment. You were blind because God was punishing you or he was punishing your parents. Do you guys remember in John chapter 9, there was a man that the disciples came across who they said was born blind. And remember the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there was this assumption, right? And here we have this man, blind Bartimaeus, he would have automatically been alienated and ostracized. You know, this man who was under this divine curse, you know, society, would there would have been no choice for him but to be there begging. Because in the mind of the people, below the peasants, below the unclean, below the worst of the sinners, you had those who were cursed. And so you just start to look at this man Bartimaeus and... I hate to say it, but in this sense, he is a picture for us. Really, he's a picture of us, right? Of every one of us outside of Jesus, right? First of all, he's blind, just as the Bible says that every sinner is born blind, right? Paul writes that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So in this beautiful text today, Bartimaeus' physical blindness is a picture of that condition of spiritual blindness that every single one of us is born into in this world as a descendant of Adam and Eve. Understand, there is an entire spiritual realm that operates around us as human beings that we have no understanding of, we have no revelation of it, we have no insight about its existence until the day that we are born again by the Holy Spirit. When God Almighty comes into our lives by that Spirit and he opens up our eyes to this entire realm, and the Bible declares, you know, talks about our salvation, that we've been called out of darkness, right? Out of that blindness and into this marvelous light. And so Bartimaeus is a wonderful picture of that blindness for us. Again, not only is he blind, but he was poor, right? He was a beggar. And the Bible, again, would, would describe every lost sinner as being in poverty, right, outside of Christ. Certainly, we have nothing spiritually speaking that we can offer. Remember in that parable in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking about the creditor and the two debtors. And it finally says that when they had nothing with which to repay, he then freely forgave them both. So we look at blind Bartimaeus, and as much as we may hate to admit it, this was each of us. Right? Blind to the truth of the gospel, too broke to do anything about it, just like poor Bartimaeus here. In fact, I think that the Holy Spirit has given us his name in a sense because Bartimaeus could be any one of us. And I think by giving him a name, it just makes his plight so much more personal. Because we could just insert our name right there, couldn't we? 
This could be the story of blind David or blind Susan, and certainly it, it could be the story of blind Bill, right? Here's blind Bartimaeus. He's blind. He's begging this perfect picture of mankind, spiritually speaking, outside of Christ. And because of all this, look where we find him. Where, do, where is he? He's sitting there by the roadside. He's by the wayside, outside of the city, which is the perfect place for marginal people. And I think that there's so many people today, though they may not have an understanding or they may not have the sense of their true spiritual need, they do feel marginalized. They feel like they're outcast. They feel somehow disenfranchised by society, and so many people will tell you that they feel sometimes like they're just sitting there waiting for something to happen, you know, waiting there by the roadside, powerless, right? Waiting or even maybe wasting away by the wayside. And you just try to think about Bartimaeus, right? No doubt, day after day, here's this man who would hear all the creaking of the wagon wheels as they were being pulled by him. He'd hear the shuffle of the sandals along the rocky roads. He'd hear the sound of camels and he'd hear conversations of people. He'd be covered by their dust as they walked by. Here's everyone moving along while he simply sits still. And again, I bring it up because I think that maybe there might be a few of us here this morning who can identify with that. You know, sometimes we can feel like there's all these things that are happening around us and people are moving and yet we're just still sitting, stuck, wondering, waiting, begging, kind of hoping for a cure. And then suddenly what happens? In the commotion, we hear that Jesus of Nazareth, right, this new and fresh and really controversial rabbi, we hear that he is in the crowd and he is about to pass by. This person who has healed so many and has provided hope to so many who are hurting, right? He is about to come. There's something that happens there in this crowd, right? There's a, a murmur that just starts to reverberate through the crowd. And Bartimaeus, somehow he hears something. He becomes aware. Maybe things just sound different. There's something happening in this crowd that he's never heard before from these religious crowds that pass through and head up to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what it is. He can't quite figure it out yet. And then suddenly news starts to kind of radiate out in his direction, out to the edge where he sits. And the words that he hears are that it's Jesus of Nazareth who's making his way by. And when he hears those words, we can only imagine the kind of flood of emotion, right? Because this is the one, right? This is the Jesus that Bartimaeus has been just hearing about for the last three and a half years. And you can bet that blind Bartimaeus would have heard about him because the single miracle that Jesus performed the most, as recorded for us in the scriptures, the miracle he performed more often than any other miracles was what? You guessed it. It was giving sight to the blind. And so you can bet Bartimaeus would have heard those stories, right? Sitting there incredibly, unbelievably, the most important thing has just happened to him, and that is that this Jesus is about to pass 
within shouting distance. And so again, we just try to put ourselves in his shoes. And so not surprisingly, look what we read next in verse 47. His waiting turns into crying out in desperation. It says in verse 47 that when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So over all the noise of the crowd and the confusion of this passing mob and what was no doubt just a myriad of conversations and commotion, this man tries to be heard. Right? You can imagine him just sort of shouting out boldly, but shouting out just into the darkness of the reality that he lived in. And he begins to cry to Jesus and ask for mercy. And as he does, notice he boldly declares Jesus to be what? To be the Messiah. Because he calls out Jesus, son of David. And you can underline those four words in that verse because they are central to this account and to what's really happening here. Right? Son of David is this Jewish phrase that's used for us only two times in Mark's account. Right, written for Roman readers primarily. It's used once in this verse. It's used once in the very next verse, both times by this blind man, Bartimaeus, who recognized Jesus to be the Messiah who he truly was, to be the heir to David's throne, right? This Messiah that would receive the kingdom that had been promised to the son of David, right? David's greater son who would be king, who would finally bring fulfillment to all of those promises made to David and, and before that to Abraham. Son of David really is one of the most common Jewish titles of the Messiah. And, you know, again, ironically, though Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, he was far from spiritually blind. Because he recognized Jesus for who he truly was, even though the religious leaders just couldn't see it. And it's another one of these kind of beautiful kingdom paradoxes that we've been talking about. But this one simply that the blind will see. Right? This man without eyesight, we could say, had remarkable insight. He recognized Jesus to be the very truth, right? The promised son of David who would give sight to the blind, right? And do other, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah declared that when Messiah came, one of the things he would do would be, would be to open blind eyes. And so we have to think that Bartimaeus, as he had heard these tales, these, these accounts, he recognized that there was no one out there who was doing this except for Jesus, and he recognized him. He saw Jesus to be the Messiah that these Old Testament prophecies predicted. And he was, able to, the, the, he was able to change lives in a way that only God could change them. So Bartimaeus saw clearly by faith in this direct contrast to the blind unbelief of the Jews. Right? He knew in faith that Jesus could do for him what no one else could. Because notice it's significant here. Notice what he cries out to Jesus for. He asks Jesus for mercy instead of asking for money. Right? Which is remarkable considering, you know, as a beggar, their lives would depend on the generosity of those who would pass by. And in that culture, people believed that they earned blessings by helping beggars. 
So you can only imagine that these pilgrims who are headed there up to the holy city, either they're feeling really generous because they had, you know, God had blessed them that year, or they know they hadn't really blessed God too much, so they're going to earn a little extra favor as they head up to the temple. So these beggars would depend on these times of year, especially kind of the way retailers depend on a good Christmas season. Right, so for Bartimaeus to cry out to Jesus and ask for mercy instead of money, he's really kind of risking everything that he knows, which I just think is significant because although his life as a beggar was less than ideal, it was a life that was at least, what, it was familiar and it was comfortable. And I think that that so often speaks to many of us. Many people today are so content and comfortable even in their blindness and their misery. So often they, or, or maybe we, we know something is missing, but at the same time, we're kind of bound up by this fear of the unknown. Fear that a, a healing would bring that change for us and it would really demand change of us. It can be a scary thing, really, to cry out to the Messiah for mercy. But I think here this man Bartimaeus, he recognizes Jesus for who he is. He exercises all of the faith that he has. He's crying out to him in desperation. In fact, the Greek word that's used there for cried out is a word krazo. And it means literally the cry of a woman during childbirth, right? So this was an intense shout, right? And so we, no wonder it says in verse 48 that many warned, warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So here the crowd tries to shut this guy up. They say, look, stop all that shrieking, stop all of this crying for mercy. We can't hear the sermon because it was customary as a rabbi walked along that they would teach or they would talk as they were walking. And no doubt this big multitude that were following after Jesus and kind of gathering around Jesus, they now couldn't hear Jesus and what he was teaching because of all of this shouting. And after all, what in the world could a blind beggar possibly have to bother the great teacher about? Right? Although, as though Jesus wasn't to be troubled by a poor wretch like this guy who was absolutely undeserving of anything. And yet that's precisely the point, isn't it? That's why Bartimaeus cries out for mercy. Because mercy is simply us getting what we don't deserve. Right Here's a man who knows he truly needs, and he knows he needs mercy. And certainly lots of people who are in need, they cry out for that. But I think this is especially a, a true cry and a pure cry from this man's heart because he knows he doesn't deserve anything. He understands the theology of his people, right? He probably considers himself to be cursed by God because he was blind. He knew that he needed mercy. He knew that he was a sinner because his blindness had forced him to see that. So there's a real sense in which he is crying out in desperation. And so again, I think it's very strange as we think about Bartimaeus here, in a sense... 
it's his blindness that was his greatest blessing because it's what helped him to see his own sin and to see his deep need. And the same thing can so often be true in our lives. And I think that this is what really helps us understand this man because he understands his own true condition, right? He's an outcast, he's a sinner, and you can bet that that fact has just been hammered home in his mind day after day after day. Because even as a blind man, he can just feel the disdain and the despising of the people who pass him by. So it's his blindness that was actually a blessing to him and a great help for him because it forced him to look at Jesus and see Jesus through the eyes of faith, right? He didn't see Jesus. He didn't see this dusty king who wasn't clothed in robes and who wasn't carrying a royal scepter and who wasn't ascending a throne in some kind of a royal procession. He couldn't see Jesus the way that everybody else did, which was what was tripping them up. And yet he looked through the eyes of faith and therefore he knew who Jesus truly was. And he knew enough to know that Jesus could help him. I think in a way it would be right to say that his heart had seen Jesus long before his eyes ever would. And I, and I certainly never want to trivialize anything but so often in our own lives, I think that we can be blind to the blessings of the difficulties in our lives. And yet those are the very things that force us to really start to look with eyes of faith, right? To look with our hearts and to truly see Jesus. So whatever the struggle is in our life, whether it's sickness or whether it's a, a child who's in rebellion whether it's financial difficulty or relational loss, whatever it is, these things are the things that sometimes really force us to see Jesus for who he truly is, and then they prompt us to cry out to him like this man does. And yet, tragically, we see that all this crowd wants him to do is to be quiet, right? What's especially interesting, I think, is that Jericho was the home of many of the priests and the Levites who served at the temple in nearby Jerusalem. And so we have to suspect that many of them are right here in this crowd today. They are part of this religious crowd of these religious people that are heading up to Jerusalem for this religious feast. And of course, the irony is that these religious leaders and this religious crowd, they are trying to stop any chance of Jesus' ministry of mercy being manifest in this man's life. And I remember years ago, I think I've shared with you this before, but when Michelle and I were first saved, we were really pressing into the kingdom. And we were attending church, you know, three times a week. We were there twice on Sundays and Wednesday nights. And then we were at small groups and Bible studies and a Bible college class, literally five other nights a week. Right? We're reading our Bibles every day. And there were more than a few who were all around us, even within the church, who asked us, like, what is wrong with you guys? Right? Worried that we had been caught up into some kind of a cult my parents, who are believers, actually asked their pastor, what is the story with this Calvary Chapel group? Right? Are they a cult that our kids have gotten involved in? 
But God was doing this fresh new thing and he was doing this deep work in us that really transcended all of our trials. It was so much bigger even than we knew. And so I think that there is this beautiful, beautiful lesson here for us in Bartimaeus for each and every one of us in never allowing the crowd around us to determine what we do with Jesus. Even a religious crowd. Right? It's so important. We decide the relationship we want to have with God, how close we want to be with him. Right? Determine what, you know, what we want to tell him about the needs that we have in our lives, the way that we need to reach out to him by faith. And don't let anybody keep us away from that. Right? You do what you need to and don't accept anybody else around you's lukewarm kind of vibe. Right? If they're stuck in some kind of a status quo, you need something from God. You do what this guy did. He took whatever faith he had and he cried out to the Lord with it. And look what happened next as a result. I love this verse. Verse 49. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer, rise he is calling you. Now this seems so simple, and yet I would suggest that this is nothing less than supernatural, what just happened in this verse. Because amidst all the noise and amidst all the commotion of all this pa Passover pilgrimage parade, right? we've got these thousands of people who are pressing toward Jerusalem. We have this great multitude that we read about up in verse 46 who were following after Jesus and crowding around Jesus and yet Jesus hears the cries of this one man and he stops in his tracks just like we've seen him do so many times before because the ears of Jesus are attuned to hear the cry of the marginal person the outcast person, right? The downtrodden, the, the desperate person. We think about just in the miracles we've seen Mark record, right? We think about the leper in chapter one, the demoniac, and then that woman with the issue of blood in chapter five. We think about that Syrophoenician woman, right? A Gentile woman in chapter seven, that other blind man there in chapter eight, the boy with the demon in chapter nine. You think about those little children that gathered around him in chapter 10, right? These are just some of the miracles that Jesus did, but all of them for people that society and the religious establishment would have dismissed as unimportant or written off as unworthy. And now we have this blind man who sat there languishing by the side of the road and Jesus stopped for all of them. And we talked just last week about the fact that at this point, nothing could stop him on his journey to Jerusalem. Right? Nothing would get in the way of his road to the cross. And yet here he stood still, right? stopped in his tracks to answer this persistent plea for mercy. And I think if there's anything that we've seen through all of our studying and our reading of the Gospels, we see over and over this compassion of God towards hurting people demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus at each and every turn. Right here, he stopped, and what does he says? He says, call him here, right? Don't silence him, bring him 
to me. And I love the way Luke puts it in Luke 18. He says that Jesus commanded that he be brought to him. There's a force of a command. And I, and I believe that this really should speak to us personally. When we think about Jesus here stopping this whole progression, I think it's important for us to realize this is something that delighted Jesus to do. I mean, you put yourself in the place of Jesus, right? He is so full of love and he is so full of mercy, so full of grace. He's so incredibly compassionate towards us as fallen human beings. And when you have as much mercy as Jesus does, the problem is never that you're going to run out of mercy, right? The problem is finding enough people who are willing to take some of that mercy off of your hands. And right, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, I love what he said in this vein. He said that mercy needs misery to give an occasion to work. And when you cry out to Jesus for salvation this morning, or when you cry out to him for help this morning, you never have to worry that Jesus is going to say, whoa, man, I'm a little tapped. Right? Like, check back with me two weeks from Friday when I get my next installment of mercy. That never happens, ever. But to the contrary, what will happen is that he will bring the entire progression to a halt for you. In fact, the Bible teaches that when a person cries out to Jesus for their salvation, the whole progression of activity in heaven comes to a stop. In a, in a kind of a sanctified sense, right? It declares that all the angels in heaven explode in celebration when one person gets saved. So please remember, crying out to Jesus still stops him in his tracks. It still gets his attention each and every time. So now we see from verse 49, I love this, the very same crowd that was telling Bartimaeus to pipe down, right, now is helping him to get up in verse 50, it says that throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Right, so here's Jesus. He's starting to draw out this developing faith from this man. And notice he does it by asking him this wonderful, simple question. A question, by the way, that God has never stopped asking and it's, what do you want me to do for you? Now, of course, Jesus knew what he wanted. Jesus asked this question, of course, knowing that this man was blind. He knew what he wanted, and Jesus knew what he needed. But God still wants us to tell him our needs. Right? Because it's this constant expression of our, our trust in him and our reliance upon him. Right? It's this searching question from Jesus. He knows exactly what Bartimaeus is going to ask for. Spoiler alert, he's going to ask for his sight back, right? But Jesus asks him this question for a couple reasons. I think they're important. First of all, he's giving Bartimaeus a chance to publicly declare that he knows who Jesus is. So when Jesus does change his life, the entire crowd is going to know how that happened. And yet the second thing too is that literally Jesus is opening up the storehouses of heaven to this kind of genuine faith. 
He says, what do you want me to do for you? Right? You name it. And sometimes the Bible says that we go without what we need when God would want to give us something. Why? Simply because we won't answer that simple question, what do you want me to do for you? Right? James 4 says that you do not have because what? You do not ask. Because Jesus wants to ask. I mean, he wants to, to answer when we do ask. And notice too what Jesus is doing here. He's modeling for the disciples that lesson of being a true servant that he had just taught them in the last discussion. Here you have the king of heaven. Right, the Son of God in the flesh, and he is becoming the true servant, the true slave of a sinner. This debased, cursed, lowly outcast. Right? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You be the servant. You want to be the first? Be the slave of all, just like me. Right? We talked about being that person like Jesus who lives to make life better for the people around them. And so what is it this morning? What's that thing for you this morning that you would answer to Jesus if he asked that same question of you? What do you want me to do for you? And maybe it's healing physically or emotionally. Maybe it's restoration of a broken relationship. Maybe it's for provision or direction. Or maybe it's just simply to have him draw you closer to him. Right? Maybe like that, remember the father in Mark 9 who cried out, Lord, you know, help my unbelief. But whatever it is, the Lord Jesus wants us to ask it of him to exercise that developing imperfect faith that we have and just entrust that need to him. But as we do, let me encourage you, what the Lord so often wants to do is so far beyond what we think that we want or what we think that we need. Because isn't it interesting, some of you Bible students already saw this, but do you remember this is the exact same question we just saw that Jesus asked, asked of James and John? Earlier in the chapter, remember they came to him and tried to trick him into giving them the two most prominent places in his kingdom, right there at his right hand and at his left. And in verse 36 of this chapter, Jesus had just asked them, what do you want me to do for you? But of course, we talked about the fact these guys didn't know what they were asking for, that their request was a selfish request. It was fueled by pride. It was fueled by selfish ambition because, again, the other James, he also cautions this. Right after he says, you do not have because you do not ask, then he adds that you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Right? We ask for selfish things and then we're surprised when the Lord doesn't give us exactly what we want. Right? We ask for things we think that we need, but Jesus knows exactly what we need. He knows what's best for us. And he always is looking to do something so much deeper, so much beyond even what we could ask or think. Look what happens next. Bartimaeus stops Jesus with this cry for mercy and we read next in verse, so Jesus answered and he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. 
And I love this. Again, it's such a simple request, but I think in making it, of course, Bartimaeus is asking for what he thought was his greatest need physically, but unknowingly, he's asking for what Jesus knew was his greatest need spiritually. It's like Paul prayed to the Ephesians, right, that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we would know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this was something that only Jesus could do for Bartimaeus and that only Jesus can do for us. You know, all of us as human beings, we all bear some particular mark of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And I mean, aside from simply the sinful condition that we inherited or our separation from the Lord, for Bartimaeus, of course, his predominant thing was physical blindness, right? But all of us bear some mark, some specific evidence of the fall. And sometimes whatever it is can become so big that it kind of starts to become this solely identifying thing in our lives, where people look at us or when they think of us or when you know, our name or our face comes up in their mind, the very first thing they think of is this mark that the fall has left, this thing that's been introduced into our lives, like the blindness of Bartimaeus. It's this something maybe that's overwhelmed our life and it now dominates us to such a degree that this is what we've become known for, maybe in our families or in our neighborhoods. And the fact of the matter is, it's just a consequence of that sin in the garden. Now, it may not be physical blindness. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an addiction to a certain sin. Maybe it's an addiction to drugs or to alcohol or to sex. Maybe it's bitterness or it's wrath or it's simply being just kind of an angry person or maybe it's an explosive temper or even a tendency towards violence. You know, maybe you're a person who's just a habitual liar, right? A deceiver, all of these things, right? And you think about these things when they're present in our lives, and usually they just start so small, and yet we notice the struggle when we're young, right? That we're struggling against it, but then the older we get, the more we start to see this thing, the way that it has control over us, this terrible mark that it's become. And for some people, it starts to take over their lives, and they start to hate themselves on the basis of that sin. Right? You think about a person who is terminally selfish or self-absorbed or a person who's just a power-hungry person or a person who's dominated just by jealousy to the point where that thing starts to just become their identity in the very same way that the blindness of Bartimaeus had identified him. And from a human perspective, Bartimaeus is hopeless, right? He is helpless to change himself. Bartimaeus cannot change himself. Right? You can't change yourself. I can't change myself. None of us can change ourselves. And the Lord said so much through Jeremiah. He said this. He said, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? He said, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And surely we can all, at some level, we can recognize this in our lives. Bartimaeus needed help. 
to change himself and to heal himself. And he needed help that was way outside of himself. He needed help and he needed healing that only the Lord can provide. Because notice also, the healing that he needed was way beyond all of the resources of anyone around him. There was nothing they could do to help him in his blindness and to help him in his... his I mean, the best thing they could do was to just try to make him comfortable in his misery. Right? And it's the very same thing with us. No one can do in our lives what God alone can do. And I'm talking about good people, wonderful people, religious people in the best sense of the word. All that they can really do is to try to comfort us or pity us. Maybe they could give us a little bit of understanding about why we are the way they are, but they can't provide us with the power that's needed to change our lives. Only the true and living God can do that. Only Jesus himself can do that. Only he is the one that can heal us of all of those marks that the fall has left on our lives. Right? Bartimaeus here asked for his sight, but Jesus is about to give him so much more than that. Look in verse 52. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So here the servant even of beggars, Jesus touches him and he heals him physically, but he also saved him spiritually. Right? Bartimaeus received so much more than his sight because again, look the way that Mark notes it specifically. Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. And in the original language, that phrase made you well it's a very specific verb, sozo. And it's where we get our word, saved. So what Jesus says is that your faith has saved you. Right, this physical salvation, right? Him being delivered from the darkness of blindness into the light of sight, it's just an outward picture of the spiritual salvation that he also experienced. And what we've learned again and again all throughout the ministry of Jesus, yes, he has the power to heal disease and to touch these marks that the fall has left on us physically, but much more important than that, he has the power to save sinners and to restore that separation from the Lord that the fall has produced in us spiritually, right? That's the healing touch of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are feeling heavy under the weight of some mark that the fall has left in your life, let me assure you, Jesus wants to touch you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole and accepted and beloved. And he wants to have you to follow after him. Because notice the first thing Bartimaeus does, right, with his newly opened eyes is he fixes them on Jesus and then starts to follow after Jesus, right? To become an obedient follower, right? Living this life of worship. And he did it without any hesitation, without any reservation, because there was one more neat note that Mark included. It was up in verse 50. When Jesus called Bartimaeus to himself, look up there again. It says that throwing aside his garment... He rose and came to Jesus. And this was important for him 
And I think it's important for us because in Jesus' time, of course, a beggar would sit there and they would spread this cloak out in front of them and that's what would catch all of the coins that were tossed by people that passed by. And historians tell us that these cloaks were kind of made of a material like they were specially striped so that people would know that that person who was begging was legitimately begging that they had no other sort of means of financial support. So a beggar's cloak was as important to his livelihood as boats and nets were to a fisherman like Peter. Or a booth was to a tax collector like Matthew. And so in throwing this cloak aside, even before he received the healing, what was Bartimaeus doing? Well, by faith he was saying, well, I know that Jesus is going to heal me and I'm not going to need this thing anymore. Right? Just in the same way that others abandoned boats, they abandoned booths to follow after Jesus. Here's Bartimaeus tossing aside this cloak and all of the coins that would have been in it so that he could get up there and stand before the son of David and then start to follow after him passionately by faith. And what a contrast to the rich young ruler that we saw in this same chapter. This guy had so much and couldn't bring himself to abandon any of it. Right In Hebrews it says that without faith it is what? It's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Right? It's faith that sees the invisible and believes the impossible and then receives the incredible. And I think what a beautiful picture that blind Bartimaeus points or paints, pardon me, for each of us, really of each of us. Just that simple faith placed in the Lord, right? Where we're driven to desperation by our circumstances, painfully aware of his sin and of his need, unable to help himself. But he heard about Jesus. He believed on Jesus. He cries out for mercy from Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He's healed by Jesus. Now he abandons his life for Jesus. And then he simply just follows after Jesus. Isn't that awesome? He heard, he believed, he cried out, he came, he was healed, and he followed. And what the Bible promises is that every one of us, there is a changed life to be received just on the other side of that same progression in our lives. You have heard about Jesus this morning. You've heard now about him enough to put your faith in him. And now you simply need to cry out to him, Come to him, place your faith in him for salvation, and then you just sit back and watch what that believing starts to produce in your life. Right? What did Paul tell us? That if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. And old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is what God does in a human life. So how does a person get to that point? Well, it's very simple, right? Simply by coming to the Lord and looking up to him this morning and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me. I believe what the Bible says about me, that I'm a sinner and that I need some sort of a salvation. 
I am no, I've been less than perfect all my life, and I'm not surprised that heaven is so holy and that you are so holy, but even one of those sins would separate me from that relationship and separate me from heaven itself. But God, I am so thankful that you loved me so much that you sent your son into this world to die on a cross for those very sins of mine. And that he was buried and that he rose again, conquering death on the third day. And Lord, I want to place my trust in that work. I want to place my trust in that salvation and in that Savior. And I want to repent by turning from that, those things I used to be and do. And I want to now turn toward him and I want to follow after him. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes instantly into that person's life and now you are going to see what he does on the other side of that simple exercise of faith without exception he'll do it in your life you'll start to see the changes that he will make there is no sin that he won't forgive and there is not a single life that he can't change and we need to know that today because we live in a culture that is in such terrible bondage to sin in a way that is historically new in our nation and how terrible would it be if you gave your life to Christ you said okay I want to place my my faith in Jesus and then you sort of hear this conversation taking place up in heaven where they're like oh man I don't know I think this guy's like 50 50 right I don't know if we can get this guy turned around because he's just too blind or he's just too whatever right and we laugh because it never happens God is able to change any of our lives with this salvation found in Jesus and he wants to begin that process in your life even this morning but please do not delay because there's one more important detail I think that we need to consider from today's text Right here we have blind Bartimaeus languishing there by the road. And we know from the life of Jesus, from this story, Jesus will never pass through Jericho again. This is it. Right, The cross is just on the other side of this trip. And it's a good thing that blind Bartimaeus sought the Lord on this day because Jesus will never pass this way again. Right? And none of us knows in this life whether we will ever have another opportunity to cry out to Jesus for salvation. And I think sometimes we can get so callous, right? We tend to think, you know, we, we hear about salvation. We hear about the forgiveness of sins. We hear about this chance to be forgiven or this chance to secure a place in heaven for eternity. We think about, you know, we hear about beginning this personal relationship with God and we hear about having our spiritual eyes opened. And it's very easy for us to sit here and to think in our affluence and in our relative security that we have in this culture, we think, well, you know what? I'm always going to have another chance to do that. There will be another Sunday when I can do that. Maybe I'll do that next Sunday, or maybe I'll do that next month. And the problem with that, of course, is that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Right? All we have is today, the Bible says, as it relates to our salvation. But the good news is that if we handle it right, 
all we need is today, right? That's why the Bible says that indeed the right time, it says, is now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the appointed time to place your faith in Jesus Christ because we never know when we're going to have this opportunity again. And so I'm going to invite Fior to come back up and I want to just leave you with this one final question just to consider as we think about the story of Bartimaeus. It's where are you this morning? You know, are you just sitting there waiting or wasting away by the wayside? Are you at that point, finally, where you're ready to just simply cry out in desperation? Maybe Jesus has already asked you that searching question, and you just don't know how or you're afraid to answer it, to tell him what it is that you really want him to do for you. Maybe you're afraid that it's too big. Maybe you're afraid that you're not worthy. Well, guess what? You're not worthy. That's why it's called mercy. And he wants to shower it down upon you even this morning. That's that healing touch. And if you are here this morning and you've never felt that tender touch from Jesus, again, follow after the example of blind Bartimaeus and simply recognize that need that you have for mercy and cry out to him to have that mercy on you. And the promise of the scriptures is that he will do it. The promise of the scriptures is that he wants to do it. And the promise of the scriptures is that he died so that he was able to do that for you in your life today. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for today and we thank you for your text lord for your word we thank you for the example of bartimaeus lord as we simply watch that progression of his faith develop in this brief encounter with your son and father we do pray if there's anyone here this morning that's in that place lord where they've yet to confess their need, Lord, where they've yet to profess their faith, where they've yet to simply ask to be forgiven, Lord, and to trust that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was enough. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here like that, that they wouldn't leave today without talking to someone, Lord, that they wouldn't leave today without simply expressing that need to you in their hearts. Lord, that desire to be forgiven and to turn from the life that they're living and to try, Lord, not perfectly, Lord, but simply to try to follow after you. If that's you this morning, I do pray that as we worship, Lord, there will be people up front. Pastor Jeff will be up front. Lord, other people will be up front. And I just would encourage you to come to them they can help you, they can answer questions, they can, they can guide you in the steps that you need to take to confess your need, to ask for forgiveness, and to begin to follow Jesus. And for the rest of us, Father, I pray that whatever the need is in our life, Lord, that maybe we haven't confessed, Lord, you've asked us that question, what do you want me to do for you, Lord? And we're afraid to give the answer. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to respond to that, Lord, and to entrust these things to you and to allow you to have your work in them in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you 
And we do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.